Revelation chapter 8, we will be this morning, with God's help, considering verses 1 through 5. This is the word of the Lord. Please give it your full attention. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God with seven trumpets, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar, holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him, so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire, fire of the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Gracious Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for your word. And help us now to, uh, to gain encouragement and edification, Lord, and even a challenge from your holy word. Help us, Lord, to understand, to hear, to see, and to believe. Be glorified as I decrease, Lord. I pray that you would increase and be glorified in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. I greet you uh, again in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I do welcome you on this Lord's Day Sabbath as we continue our study through the Apocalypse of John. Last time we considered silence in heaven because of the righteous judgment of God as it was executed upon the wicked. It is important to note uh, that we recall our first point from last Lord's Day. The, the point was putting things in order, putting things in order. Uh, the emphasized point was that when we come to the eighth chapter, uh, we must not think of Revelation as we progress as being a straight line, meaning uh, we must not think of Revelation as being uh, chronolo- uh, chronological. Uh, things are happening one after another. Now, hold on with me for just a moment. Uh, in the sixth chapter, we are given a vision of God's judgment upon the wicked. Uh, we are seeing mountains uh, being uprooted, so on and so forth. Blood turning or the moon turning to blood. It is the, the, the day of the Lord. It is the dreadful day of God's judgment. Then we are told in the seventh chapter uh, that God has held back judgment so that all of his elect ones could be sealed. John is given a vision of the sealed ones, the 144,000, God's perfect number, uh, the number which no man can count. As numerous as the the sands of the sea. They have been given white robes. Uh, They are singing songs of victory before the Lamb. He, the great shepherd, brings his people safely into the new Jerusalem, heaven above. There, in the heaven above, they shall never hunger. They shall never thirst. Uh, Christ promises to wipe every tear from their eye. But then... John is given a vision of silence. And it's not a silence of awe of the glory of God. It's not silence of of seeing the beatific vision, as Pastor Isaiah reminded me. It's it's an awe of dread. If they are seeing anything of God, they are seeing his backside and not his face. It's judgment that is described in chapter 6. So here in chapter eight, you're, we are given silence that is that is pointing us to, towards judgment. But to keep in line, keep, to keep this in mind that we're not moving in a straight line. It's a recalling back to this to what's happened in the sixth chapter in the sixth chapter where there was a great earthquake. We'll see that going forward in the sixth chapter when the sun becomes black, the moon turns to blood, uh, the stars from the sky fall. Mountains are uprooted from their foundation. Heaven and earth is rolled up like a scroll. All of those things have happened in chapter 6. And they're going to happen again now here in chapter 8. 
Therefore, we must not see this as being chronological. The point that I'm trying to make is when we come to this eighth, eighth, eighth chapter, we must treat the seventh chapter as if it's not already happened. As difficult as that's going to be. We've read the seventh chapter. We've, we've received information from it. But we must treat this this going forward as if, wait, but this hasn't happened yet. It's It's an encouragement, if you will, from our great shepherd who says, in the midst of you seeing this great tragedy of judgment, hold on, you will not be a part of that judgment. You will be secure. You will not suffer with the wicked. You will be safe in God's tabernacle. God, as it were, gathers his chicks to himself under the shadow of his wing. We shall be safe. I hope that that makes sense. The seventh chapter, the seventh and last seal, I should say, it connects to the sixth seal <clears throat> that is before the seventh chapter. And now, uh, there's a great question that was asked by one of our members, and it's this. So, because I can't get seventh chapter out of my head, if the saints are in heaven while judgment is taking place, they are silent, does that mean that there was a rapture? And that we're all kind of watching judgment as it takes place, but not a part of it. Or... Is there tribulation happening and then judgment? And we are all aghast, kind of holding our mouths. I said to one of the saints uh, last week, it's like when you see a car accident and you go, you you can't say anything, right? It's just that moment of gasp. Is that what's taking place? That we're seeing uh, judgment take place, but we are not a part of tribulation, uh, nor are we, um, nor are we on the earth. I hope that question is clear. The answer is kind of a yes and no. It appears that when the final day of judgment arrives, saints are saved from being judged with the wicked. Listen to this, though. But it doesn't happen in succession. Does that make sense? It doesn't happen first this, and then that, and then this. It happens not in succession, but simultaneously. It's it's a all at once kind of thing that we are being told things that seem to be successive, so that seem to be first and then second and then third. But they are meant to be understood all at as if they are all happening at one time. Judgment, salvation, uh, the wicked being judged by God, the, the righteous being saved, all of this happening at the same time. John is given the visions in what appears to be one thing after another, but they are to be understood as happening all at once. Now, another question was asked to me, and I love these questions, and it was very, very kind of blunted. It was this. How can we be sure that all these things that you're saying are true? I appreciate that kind of a question, too. I think it's a fair question. Right. How do you know all these things are right? After all, we're talking about eschatology. Uh, when asked about his views on the, the end times eschatology, the late Dr. R.C. Sproul said, it depends on what day of the week you ask me. And, and, and I get he, he's being uh, clever, of course, and I get that perspective. I do believe, or I wouldn't be teaching it, that this view is correct because of two things, the nature and the structure of this book. The nature of the book is is an apocalyptic book, right? It is uh, a book of symbols. Therefore, it is to be interpreted symbolically. It is structured in a way that, that recapitulates or retells the same thing from different vantage points, as we talked about last week. The book draws not just from what was taking place in the seven churches, but the book draws from all of Scripture. All of Scripture. In order to give a greater theological significance to the previous acts of God. We're doing biblical theology now. To the previous acts of God. Revelation is saying, yes, that was true. The walls of Jericho did come tumbling down. Uh, the children of Israel were released from their bondage. But there's a greater significance even than what those people at that time thought was taking place. 
You could have taken a, a slave from Egypt and they would have said, this is the greatest thing that has ever happened to me in my life. And God is saying, and I'm just using this to show that there will be an even greater thing to happen in the lives of all of my people. Revelation takes all of the acts of God throughout Scripture and applies them to a greater redemption and a greater judgment. Therefore, I think that the approach that we're taking is correct. We shall see in the 8th chapter that we are given the same judgment of God from different vantage points. Just like from in the four Gospels, we are given the same gospel, but from four different perspectives. So it will be in Revelation. I believe that the uh, interpretation that takes a straight line approach to Revelation, it actually creates more questions than it does give answers. I think it's creating more confusion than comfort and more fear than courage. Now, with that said, uh, some of you may even be thinking about what's going on in, in Russia and, and with China. When we get to the later chapters, you're, we, we'll be talking about this Gog and Magog kind of thing. And those who think Gog and Magog, they're rising now. Uh, no. And we'll explain why that's not the case. Uh, now, with that said, let us consider uh, this eighth chapter. As we prepare for the seven trumpet blasts, uh, we have prayed that God would give us grace to know. And we pray now that God would give us grace as we consider two points this morning, just two. Number one, the altar, I'm sorry, the angel before the altar, the angel before the altar. Verse two, and I saw seven angels who stood before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Very interesting. The Apostle John is given a vision of seven angels who stand before God and who are given seven trumpets, seven angels, and they are given seven trumpets. We are not told the identity of the angels, but there are there are a few suggestions. But let's just consider maybe one and one and a half, maybe in the first chapter, verse 20, John sees the glorified Christ standing among seven lampstands. The lampstands are the seven churches. And he has in his hand seven stars. The scriptures say the angels of the seven churches. The seven stars are the angels. Seven angels of the seven churches. It could very well be that these angels are uh, angels who have been charged to protect the church. Seven of them even. The other option is that there are seven actual angels. Just seven who have been charged with being in the presence of God. Now, this is very uh, mysterious because we don't know a lot about angels, at least from uh, knowledge, although much knowledge is given to us in the scriptures about angels. But in Isaiah 63 and verse 9, the scriptures testify that there are seven angels who serve in the presence of God. They are called uh, the angels of God's presence. This could also be that there are seven angels, actually, who are protecting the church against the forces of darkness. Uh, it's an interesting thing. Uh, the Jewish apocalyptic writings identify these angels as, as having title of archangel. The title of archangel. And there are seven of them, actually. Uh, we are familiar with two. One is in Jude, chapter 9. His name is Michael. Another one is in Luke, chapter 1, and verse 19. His name is Gabriel. In the apocalyptic or apocryphal writings of the Jew, the Jewish uh, writings, there are five others, and their names are Uriel, Raphael, Rugriel, Sheriel, and Remiel. Not mentioned in scripture, but they are mentioned by all of the scholars that I studied for this book. All of them are, are mentioning these seven angels. They have been summoned by God. In verse 6, they are readying themselves to blow the trumpet of God's judgment. But before God executes judgment, John sees, listen to this now, another angel. Now, it's important. These seven angels are referred to as the angels. They are, they are distinguished from angels in general. They are given this kind of distinguishing mark, the angels. And then, as we move forward, there is another angel. 
who is distinguished from the seven angels. I hope that this is not spinning your head right now, but if it is, please forgive me. Now, who is this angel? Well, he is distinguished from the seven angels. This could be the angel described in Isaiah 63, who is in the presence of God. But it's interesting the way that Isaiah describes this angel. Listen to this. Isaiah 63 in verse 9. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. Talking about the people of God. In his love and in his mercy, he redeemed them. This angel. And he lifted them and carried them all the days of old. So this angel that Isaiah is describing seems to be a savior and a redeemer. Well, we only know of one savior and one redeemer. That would be our Christ. Here's our issue. Our issue is that we don't like calling Jesus an angel. There's another false religion that loves to call Jesus an angel, a couple of them actually. And and we don't want anything to do with, with being associated with calling Jesus an angel because They refer to Jesus as being a created being. And that's why we stay away from the term angel, right? Because angel usually usually means a a created being. Interesting thing, though, in Revelation chapter 10, Christ is described as being an angel. Again, Revelation chapter 10 and verse 1. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. I saw another strong angel. Listen to, to how he is described. Coming down out of heaven, Revelation 10.1, clothed with a white cloud, that would be glory, and rainbow, the rainbow was upon his head, that's covenant, and his face was like the sun, his feet like pillars of fire, and he had in his hand a little book which was open. He placed his right foot on the sea, wow, this angel, his left uh, foot on the land, and he cried out with a loud voice, listen to this, As when a lion cries or when a lion roars and he cried out and when he cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. Though this person is described in Revelation 10 as an angel, he has all the characteristics of God. Similar to that in chapter one, when we read of the description of who Christ is in chapter one, they are very, very similar to to this angel described for us in chapter 10. What's the point? The point is that I am submitting to you this morning that the distinguished angel, the one who is different from the seven angels, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why does all of that matter? Why does it matter? It matters because of what comes next. Notice, brothers and sisters, in verse three, where is the angel standing? Where is the angel standing in verse three? And then notice the language that is used to describe his act. Verse 3, another angel came and stood at the altar, holding a golden censer. Much incense was given to him, so that he might add to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne. Where is this angel standing? He's standing at the altar. What What altar? Up until now, where have we seen the altar mentioned? Go back to chapter 6, if you would. Chapter 6. Where have we seen this, this altar mentioned thus far? In chapter 6 and verse 10. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. Jesus, or this angel, Jesus, is standing before the altar. Why does that matter? John is using the the practices of the Old Testament priests to communicate to the church that their prayers are being heard. The church would know their Old Testament. that They would see that it is the priest who goes before the altar. It is the priest who holds the golden censer. It is the priest who has the incense, who offers up the prayers of the saints to God. Here is this angel, distinguished from the other archangels, who was coming before the, the altar of God to offer up prayers on behalf of the saints. 
the seven angels or archangels. They, they are standing with their trumpets. They are, they are ready to sound the trumpets of God's command to execute judgment. But before their trumpets blast, before the walls of Jericho come tumbling down, if you will, Christ approaches the golden altar that is before God's throne. He has gold, a golden censer. Uh, you've seen those. It's, it's kind of like no, this, uh, kind of like a bottle, if you will, uh, container. And in it is incense. You've seen the Roman Catholics as they're walking down the aisle. They are waving those, those uh, censers. Christ approaches the throne of God, the altar, and he has in his hand a golden censer filled with incense. He's holding a golden censer in which burning coals and incense can be carried. And he's given much incense to offer on the altar with the prayers of the saints. The incense is meant to represent the prayers of the saints. Uh, that which is within this goblet, that's what it is, within the goblet, if you will, is the prayers of the saints. In the Old Testament, the altar of incense in the tabernacle, in the temple, was a piece of furniture that was located closest to the Ark of the Covenant, which symbolized the footstool of God's heavenly throne. The altar of incense stood immediately outside the veil that marked the inner chamber, the holiest place, or the most holy place in which the Ark rested. The location made it impossible, or made it possible for priests to offer incense every morning and every evening. The smoke of incense accompanied the prayers of Israel. The, the smoke that would that would gather in the holy place was to be symbolic of the prayers of the saints that filled the presence of God. It, it, it would ascend before the Lord. It was symbolic of how the prayers of the saints, they rise to God as smoke rises. Although it was located in the outer chamber at the entrance to the holiest place, the, the incense altar belonged to the inner chamber. For on the day of atonement, the high priest would burn incense until the cloud of smoke engulfed the, the atonement ark, shielding him from the consuming purity of the Lord as he entered into the holy place. To receive the prayers of the saints. Now John sees. In this heavenly sanctuary. In this heavenly holy of holies. That the altar is there. But there is no veil. The altar is there. There is no barrier between God and man. We are to understand from this imagery. That when the lamb breaks the seventh seal. There is silence in heaven. God will execute judgment, but but how has the silence come? Last week we talked about what silence is. But why has it come? Why is there silence? The second verse, it, it almost seems to be out of place. These, these angels standing with their trumpets, ready to blast. It seems to almost be out of place. We've just heard about silence. What John is doing is he's saying, here's how silence has come. Let's start again, if you will. Seven angels have been, been charged with the task of protecting the church, fighting off the forces of darkness. They stand ready to blow the trumpet of God's judgment. But there is an ordained means by which God has determined that his judgment and redemption will break forth. It is through prayer. The prayer of the saints. And I hope that you get this imagery. Here are angels standing ready to execute God's judgment. But there is a way in which God has determined that judgment would come about. It is through prayer. Judgment has come. Silence has come upon all of heaven. And the reason why it has come is because the saints have been praying. Where are the saints? Chapter 6, we learned they are under the altar. They are under the divine protection of God. 
They are washed. They are covered with the blood of the lamb that was slain upon the altar. His blood runs down and covers them. And what are these saints doing under the altar? What are they doing as they are under the divine protection of God? What are they doing? Are they not crying out with loud voices? How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The crying out of the saints is equivalent to prayer. They are crying out in prayer to God for justice. They are crying out. They are lifting up their voices. And God is assuring them that they have been heard. That God will be just. That God will not allow the the wicked to go unpunished. They are told to rest. Rest until the full number of their brethren who have been killed, even as they had been, was completed. And as they rest, God is at work. While we rest, God is at work. The seven trumpets, seven angels with their trumpets, they stand ready, ready to to act at the command of God. But before they act, there is one angel. One angel who comes to the altar holding a golden censer and there is incense in it. And he is not like he is and he is not like the priest of the Old Testament. He is and he is not like the priest of the Old Testament. Uh, When we see this, we must not think, oh, John is just saying, just like the priest of the Old Testament who come and, and offer prayers on behalf of the saints. So here is this angel offering prayers on behalf of the saints. No, he is so much better. He is so much greater than the priest of the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of the priesthood. He is the priest of priests. So when we see this angel coming to the altar having a golden censer in his hand with incense. We must see this not as one like the Old Testament priest, but one the Old Testament priest was seeking to be like. He is the fulfillment. He is our only priest. There is one mediator between God and man. The man, God, man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is he doing as he goes to the altar? He is mediating for us. The saints are crying out for for God to be holy and true, for God to be just. And there is an angel, our mediator, who comes to the altar. And he offers the prayers of the saints to God. On behalf of the saints. He is our mediator. There is silence in heaven. And here is here is how it has come about. The angels stand ready. The saints have been suffering. Their prayers have gone up to God. Their mediator, Christ, their priest, has come on their behalf, offering the prayers to to God in the most holy place. The prayers have risen to God, and God has determined that He will now execute judgment, which brings about the silence. Verse 4 describes the prayers of the saints as Rising to the throne of God. They are coming out of the angel's hand. If you will, he is holding this censer. It is filled with incense. And the incense is burning. As it does, the smoke he is holding is rising up. You can imagine uh, this one holding in his hand the bowl of incense. And the prayers are rising up to God. And he will respond At his determined time. The point is this. That when you pray, your prayers go somewhere. The prayer that is prayed without faith goes nowhere. But the prayer that is prayed in faith. Is carried by Christ. Carried by your and my mediator. To the throne of God, where it will be answered according to God's will and pleasure. 
God has decreed that by the prayers of the saints, that as the smoke rises from the most holy place, that judgment and redemption will be executed. God has decreed that it is, that it is through the prayers of the saints that judgment and redemption will be executed. Verse 5. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Verse 1, we are given silence. And, and then verse 2 almost seems out of place. There are these seven angels and there are these seven trumpets. And they are waiting to execute judgment. But John is, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, explaining to us how silence has come. By recalling chapter 6 where the saints under the altar are crying out to God for justice. For it is the ordained means by which God has decreed that judgment and redemption will come. Think about this. The angel takes the censer, fills it, uh, and fills it with the fire of the altar, then throws it to the earth. Christ says in Luke chapter 12 and verse 49, I came to cast fire on the earth. And... He says, and I would that it would already be kindled. Christ is saying, and I wish I could do it now. It's just not time. Last week, we considered the silence, the holy hush that came upon the inhabitants of heaven at the judgment of God. And now we are seeing silence has come because God has executed judgment and redemption. By way of the prayers of the saints. Secondly, let's consider the prayers of the saints. This is verses 3 and 4. That silence has come as a result of God's judgment and redemption. As a response to the prayers of the saints. That is no small point. That is no moot point. We are told that much incense was given to the angel, given to Christ, and it was added to the prayers of the saints of all times. What is the incense but prayers? And it is much prayer added to those who have already been praying. It is prayer upon prayer that is offered to Christ and that Christ is holding. There is incense, which is prayer, which is to be added to the prayers that are already in the in the, the goblet bowl, if you will, the incense. Brothers and sisters, today when we pray, our prayers will be added to the prayers of those who have come before us. Today when we pray, our prayers will be added to those who are under the altar of God, crying out for the justice of God. Brothers and sisters, when you pray, when you pray in faith, when you pray according to God's word, your prayers go somewhere. They are rising like smoke from that incense to the very throne room of God. Let me ask you this morning. Are your prayers and the way that you pray, are they being accepted by God? In the Old Testament, that fragrant smoke reached to God. And there was a metaphor that it would have in Revelation, in uh, Exodus 29, Leviticus 16, and Ephesians 5, that there was a type of sweet-smelling savor that the Scriptures describe as a reasonable, bloodless offering that goes up to God as He receives these prayers with delight. Is, is God delighted in your prayer? Revelation 8.3 echoes Leviticus 16, where the priest takes the, the, his censer full of coals of fire off of the altar, which is before the Lord, and he fills his hands with incense. 
and he will put the incense on the fire before the Lord and the smoke will rise and and it will reach the mercy seat. Are your prayers reaching God's throne? Uh, little ones, when you pray, is God hearing you? We know that we are commanded to pray. First Chronicles 16:11, look to the Lord in his strength, seek his face always. Isaiah 55, the Lord will uh, seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. Our Lord assumes that you will pray. And I am not going to spend the next 15, 20 minutes or so uh, teaching you about God's commanding you to pray. You know you should pray. I think it would be almost a waste of my time and your time if I spent the next few minutes telling you God commands you to pray. We know this. Jesus even said, when you pray, not if, but when, when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to the father, pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Uh, first, uh, first Thessalonians 5.17. Pray without ceasing. Pray at all times. Pray with all prayer and supplication. You know you should pray. Matter of fact, if I asked you, how many of you know, how many of you feel like you should pray more? All of our hands would go up. All of us would say, I don't pray as much as I should. Fine. You get the point. You should pray. My point for you is, when you pray, are your prayers being heard? Because that's a whole different subject entirely, isn't it? Some of us have memorized prayers. Things that we say when we know that we have forgotten to pray, that we babble off, just so that we can say we've, we've marked that check of prayer. But it's not intentional. It's more, more form, more more religious, if you will, than intimate. I'm not going to ask you if you are praying, but I will ask you if your prayers are being heard. Are they rising to the throne of God? Well, let's think about this. Why did the prayers of these saints, why did they reach their prayers, why did their prayers reach God's throne? Well, what was it about their prayers that was uh, a sweet-smelling aroma to God? Why were they acceptable to God? Why did he choose, in his infinite wisdom, to answer these prayers? When the Lamb came and took the book from the one enthroned to break the seals, he unleashed the purposes of God. Therefore, these prayers, which are within the fifth seal, they are a part of God's purposes for his people. God has decreed that we would pray. And when we do, when we act according to that which he has decreed, God has also decreed that he would execute judgment and redemption. Our prayers are a part of God's purpose. The outcry of the saints, the petitioning of God's justice upon the wicked, has from all eternity been decreed by God. Therefore, when Christ commands the church to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. God has decreed that. God has decreed that we would pray these things. That through the prayers of the saints, the kingdom of God would be consummated. The Spirit prays on our behalf. When we do not know what we should pray, Paul says in Romans that Christ, through his spirit, intercedes through us, for us, uh, not by a babble, not in an unknown language, but according to the will of God. When we don't know what to pray, Christ intercedes, prays through us by his spirit. He teaches us to pray. He causes us to pray uh, through the saints. His saints, we pray for his kingdom to, to be consummated. And thus, the prayers of the saints, they will rise as a sweet aroma to the throne of God when we pray in that way. I'm talking about how the prayers of the saints have been heard. It is interesting that these prayers are first 
from the saints who have been slain. And why have they been slain? They are praying and they have been slain because of the word of God. And because of the testimony which they have maintained in chapter six. They are saints. They are holding fast to God's word. They are thankfully testifying to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are praying and their prayers are being heard. There's one. Why are their prayers being heard? Because they are holding fast to God's word. And they are faithfully witnessing to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they have lost their lives in the process. And they have cried out to God. And God has heard their prayers. When we come to the 8th chapter, Christ is holding a golden censer. Again, much incense is being added. Is there and, and being added to that which he already possessed. That prayer is being added to prayer. From Adam to those who are in Christ today. All of those prayers, if you can imagine. The prayers of those who we highly respect and revere. Are being added to our prayers. Or our prayers are being added to their prayers. God has decreed that this would be the case. That all of these prayers from all of these saints would bring about his judgment and redemption. Scriptures say that the prayers of the saints, they were received. They didn't just exit the mouth and disappear into thin air. They were carried by our mediator into the presence of God. Brothers and sisters, the prayers were received first and foremost because they were prayed by saints. Those who are in Christ, those who have repented of their sin and placed their faith in Christ alone. Christ hears their prayers. If you are a saint, if you have trusted in Christ alone, then your prayers don't disappear into thin air. Your prayers are carried by your mediator into the very presence of God. It is the, the one who has been brought from faith or been, been brought from uh, darkness to light who has his prayers carried into the throne room of God. The one who is in faith, who is in Christ, can now come boldly to the throne of God. They can now receive mercy in time of need. They are encouraged to pray, Heavenly Father, who is in heaven Hallowed be your name. If you are in Christ, then God is your father. If you are not in Christ, then God is not your father. Satan is your father. And you have an opportunity to turn from darkness to light by turning from sin to Christ. Our Lord encouraged the disciples, those who have been brought from, uh, brought to saving faith and repentance, that whatever you ask for in my father's in my name, he says, ask the father in my name that he will give it to you if you are in Christ. Christ teaches his disciples about what true love is. We're saying, I you mean, I could ask about anything uh, and God will give me anything that I ask for. Uh, little ones, you may say, you mean that I could pray to God and he will give me anything that I want. I used to think that when I was small. But within the context, Christ is speaking about love. And he's saying that if you love him, you will obey him. And if you love him and obey him, then you can ask anything that is in the context of being in Christ. And he will give it to you. You can ask anything according to his name and he will hear you. It's important because sometimes we can believe. That our being heard by God. Is dependent upon our righteousness. And not his. Your being heard by God. Is not dependent upon how good you are. Or how bad you are. Your being heard by God. Is dependent upon Christ and none other. The righteousness of Christ and none other. 
our prayers are heard because we are in Christ. Christ has not said that as a prerequisite for your prayers to be heard, you must be perfect. But rather, a prerequisite for our prayers to be heard is faith. Faith in the Son of God and faith that He will do all that He has commanded and asked us to pray for. Hebrews 11.6, without faith it's impossible to, pl- to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is the rewarder of those who seek Him. Jesus said, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted. Therefore I say to you, all things, in all things for which you ask for and pray, believe that you have received them, and you will be grant, and they will be granted to you. What's the prerequisite to our prayer? Faith. You must believe. Faith in what? Faith in whom? Faith in Christ. Faith in the perfect one. And also, having faith in Christ will have a profound impact on the content of your prayer. If you have faith in Christ, it will impact what you pray for. The one who does not have true faith is not heard by God. They also will not pray for God's kingdom to come. They will pray for their own kingdom to come. They will not pray for God's will to be done. They will pray for their own will to be done. For that person, they are wicked. They will not be heard. They do not have true faith. The prayer of the wicked will not be heard. John 9.31, we know that God does not listen to sinners. But if someone is God-fearing and does his will... He listens to him. The prayer that Christ rejects is the one that is not prayed in faith. And the one that prays to exalt himself and not Christ. Proverbs 15, 29 says that those who are wicked, they are far from God and they will not be heard by him. But God hears the prayers of the saints. God hears the prayers of those who are in Christ. Their prayers have reached the most holy place. They are under the altar of God. They are under his divine protection. They have been slain because of the word of God and the testimony which they have maintained. These saints, because of their trust in God's word, because of their faithful testimony to Christ and the gospel, They have suffered persecution and they have died. They have lived sacrificially. They are saints. Saints who are living sacrificially. Saints who are willing to offer up their bodies as a living sacrifice to God, as a holy and acceptable sacrifice. Their prayers are heard before God. While on earth they are engaging in holy war. The unrighteous have opposed them. And they have not compromised their faith. The unrighteous has seen them as being unwise and foolish for for holding on to Christ. But they have not been moved. Are your prayers being heard? Are you living uncompromised lives in this world? Is your testimony true? If someone were to come and stand and testify about you, what would they say about you? About who you are? About what you are? Would they testify it is true? This is a peculiar person. It is true. This person believes that they are not of this world. And that they are heading toward a heavenly Jerusalem. Or would the opposite be true? That they would not be able to distinguish you from an unbeliever. That your light does not shine. That your testimony before the unbeliever is false. But only true when you are among the believers. Believers. 
Are your prayers being heard? Brothers and sisters, this can often be a challenge for us because in the one in the one breath we've said it's not dependent upon your righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. And on the other hand, we're saying, but he only hears the prayers of the righteous. He only hears the prayers of those who hold fast to God's word. And who remain faithful to the testimony of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a certain life that is to be lived for those who call themselves saints, isn't there? There's a certain manner of conduct, manner of life that we are to live if we call ourselves those who trust in Christ, isn't there? Christ will hear our prayers. They will be accepted to God, by God, by those who hold fast to his word. And those who are uncompromising as these saints on the, under the altar. Consider the content of their prayer. Christ prays with us, within us. Christ teaches us to pray. He causes us to pray. Through his saints, we are praying for his kingdom to be consummated, for his kingdom to come. That kind of prayer rises to God. Here is the request. How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? This is their prayer, and it is a prayer that is heard by God and received by God. They are not crying out for vindication. They are not praying for God to give them revenge. We are called to pray for our enemies. If the last few weeks of sermons did anything for you, it should have at least, at the very least, motivated you to pray for unbelievers. It should have at the very least motivated you to pray for those who are your enemies who are most likely unbelievers. The prayer of the saints is an appeal for God's perfections to be upheld. Are you praying that way? Are your prayers as you pray beginning with something like, O Lord, holy and true, you are righteous, and let your righteousness spread throughout the earth. Or are they more so prayers, Lord, I need to pay rent today. God, I need new clothes. Or get me out of this trouble that I put myself in again. Their call is a call for God to demonstrate his holiness. To uphold the standard of truth when he brings sinners to justice. And God hears that prayer. Those who have wrongfully persecuted the righteous... Those who have cast a guilty verdict upon the innocent. They bring their petitions to the judge of the earth. And by faith, they call out for him to be holy and true, to be who he is. And God hears that prayer. Lord, there are those who are in my family who are rejecting their tr your truth. Lord, I pray that you would bring them to conviction. Be it in this life or in the life to come, be holy and true. God hears that prayer. That is a, think about that. That is a sweet aroma to God himself. The prayers of the saints are accepted. They reach the holy place. They are those prayers that God has commanded the people of God to pray. Think about the things that God commands us to pray. These are the things that reach, if you will, the very nostrils of God and are a sweet smelling aroma to him. God commands that we pray that his name be exalted in the world. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 9, pray like this. Our father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Do you pray, God, let your name be holy throughout the world. God hears that prayer. And it is, a, it is a sweet smelling aroma to him. God commands that when we pray that his kingdom, that we pray that his kingdom be extended in this world. And that the consummation of the kingdom would be complete. 
Matthew 6 and 10, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Are you hoping that the kingdom of Christ would be consummated, completed, be, be brought to completion? And that all of his people, all of those whom he has loved with an everlasting love would be brought into his kingdom. Are you praying that way? Or are you only praying for a little cousin and grandma and auntie? Are you praying for all of God's people to be saved? You're commanded to pray for the rapid spreading of the gospel and that Christ will be glorified. Second Thessalonians 3.1 Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did with you. The gospel reached you. Pray that the gospel would would rapidly reach those others whom it is intended to go to. Pray that the gospel would spread. That God's people would be saved. God hears those prayers and they are a sweet aroma to him. To the church, Paul says that he bows his knee and prays that God would grant according to the riches of his glory that we would, listen to this, be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up To all the fullness of God. That put me to shame when I read that. I don't pray that for our church. Are you praying that for one another? That faith would dwell in our hearts. That we would be rooted and grounded in love. That we would be able to collectively comprehend with all the saints. The the breadth and the length and the height of, of the love of Christ. That we would know these things. Oh, what a sweet-smelling savor that is to God himself. You know what a sweet-smelling savor is like when you're in your home and either your mom or your grandmother or your wife or your husband is cooking something that that, that awakes you out of your sleep. And you come, what's going on in here? What are you making? You know the, the allure of that smell. And it is an analogy, of course, Of how pleasing those kinds of prayers are to our God. But do you pray that way? Let me be the first to say, I don't pray that way. Oh God, help me. Help me to pray this way. Dear God, I want my prayers to be heard. I don't want me to just, I don't want to just utter words that, 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 that reach nowhere. I want the words that, that proceed from my mouth to be something that Christ has Pray through me, through his spirit, that they may reach the very presence of God. Brothers and sisters, if we are going to be anything, we must be a people of prayer. The house of God is to be called a house of prayer. And we are all, I think even with our silence or with our boredom, acknowledging that we, we, We must go to God's word and see what are the prayers that he requires of us that will be pleasing to him. Because if if you're telling me that there is a prayer that God will hear, I want to pray that prayer. You're telling me that there is something that I can give to God that will reach him, that he will receive. And if you can imagine your prayer going up and as you're praying, Christ taking that prayer and saying, that's an acceptable one and putting it into that golden censer. What an image. What a truth that is. Like the saints in Revelation, we are called to cry out for justice. That God would vindicate the righteous for his name's sake. Luke 18, 7. Now will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry out to him? When? Day and night. Day and night. And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he, Christ says, will bring about justice for them quickly. Pray for justice. We are to pray for the salvation of sinners as Paul prayed for the unbelieving Israel. He says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. 
Listen to all of these. We are to pray when we are anxious. We are to pray for boldness. We are to pray for our enemies. We are to pray for one another. We are to pray for daily bread. We are to pray for our rulers. We are to pray when we are tempted. We are to pray for endurance. We are to pray for patience. We are to pray that our faith not be destroyed. We are pray we are to pray for greater faith. We are to pray for forgiveness. We are to pray for protection. It is no wonder then, brothers and sisters, why we are commanded to pray at all times and to pray without ceasing. We have a lot to pray for, don't we? When we pray and pray in these ways, our faith, our prayers rise to the most holy place of God. They are the ordained means by which God has determined to bring about justice and redemption. That is why there was silence. Because God has answered the prayers of the saints. The trumpets shall blast as we shall see. And God shall judge and redeem as we shall see. And all of this will occur because God has heard the prayers of his people. Today, by God's grace, we have... The pleasure of praying together. Will our prayers be heard? If we pray according to God's will and word. They will rise to the most holy place of God. And he will answer them in due time.